This episode of Mountain View Scattered was recorded as a part of our 2018 conference entitled Everyday Justice, God's Heart in the Christian Life. The presenter during this session is John Skeepers. He is the founder of Isapambana, the Center for Biblical Justice, based out of Cape Town. We hope that you enjoy. This is for me. You, do you want to stand? Do you want to sit down? I don't know what I want to do. Okay. You tell I'll let me. you have the microphone, though. Okay. Because I can't really introduce you, so I was hoping that you would introduce yourself, and I could just ask you a couple questions. Wow. Okay. So, just like who I am, where I'm yeah, from. Who, okay. John, who are you? What, what's your surname? Wow. <laughs> um, can I leave that to you? <laughs> Were you born to be a shepherd? What is yeah, this yeah, yeah, I saw that. Actually, now that I think about it, I saw that. that I'd actually forgotten that. So um, we're, we're going to start first with lessons here, okay? Skippers. Oh, okay. Skippers, right, yeah, yeah. Right. So nothing to do... Yeah. Nothing like sheepers. Yeah, look, yeah, okay. Yeah. The C-H, that's very difficult for me. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't ask you if it was easy or difficult. I just told you how to pronounce it. <laughs> Right. And that, that's our first lesson, Hi, by the way, in intercultural um, discussions. We could, yeah, I could actually riff off right there, but I'm going to stop. Um, so, my name is John Skippers. I, um, I work for Ispambano Center for Biblical Justice. Um, I guess I'm, I, I'm the founder. Um, it's, so, Ispambano is a new organization. Uh, we probably... I don't even know when you date these things, but we had our official launch, even though we've been working for about six to eight months before that, we had our official launch in February this year, uh, really asking the questions of what is cross-centered, so with Jesus at the center, cross-centered contextual, thinking about South Africa, cross-centered contextual justice look like? What does the Bible require of us? What does it mean to be God's people in this place, in this time, um, living out faithfully as people of justice who hold evangelism and social action together? Um, very often those two, two things are separated. Anyway, I can talk more about this, Pomano. But uh, you probably want to know a bit about me. I'm from Cape Town. I live in Salt River. Uh, I've been married for 15 years to uh, my wife, who I have no idea why she married me, but she's amazing. Uh, and we have two boys. Uh, uh, Domingo's 10 and Nathan is 9. Um, I am a rampant football fan. I love Liverpool. So uh, if anyone wants to join me to watch the greatest team in the world take their sixth European title, I'll be pleased to educate you on that uh, on Saturday night. Um, yeah, is there anything you particularly want to know? I'm, I'm yeah, just rambling no, that, here. That's it. That's good. Okay. Yeah. I think that we've picked up on a lot of things. So okay. judging you. Yeah. You can judge away, man. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> um, yeah, there were two rules that you had in coming here is that you could use all of our water by using a bath. And you had to watch football, is that true? Yeah, I, I wouldn't let the water thing go, man. Okay. I'm like, I, I'm that serious about my football, okay? Okay, right. okay. and uh, John, I'm going to, I don't want to put you in an awkward position, but you're also con continuing your studies right now? Uh, yeah, yeah. Or you're pretending to. Yeah, yeah, I'm registered as a you're student. Registered as I'm a student. registered as a student at Stellenbosch, uh, doing a master's in theology, particularly in missiology. Uh, which is the study of mission. I'm particularly thinking about urban mission um, and just uh, looking at this, just these ideas of, of what does it mean uh, to, for Christian... Uh, uh, so basically doing a critique of what I would... Uh, of Christian mission, 
um, and particularly looking at evangelism and asking questions of saying, what would it look like to uh, Christian mission and, and the Great Commission and, um, and particularly around social justice within South African context? Um, I'm, try I'm trying to give you the, the one where you don't have all the fancy names in it, which you're required to do, and you have, I even have to look up on the internet so I can impress my supervisor. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good. And so now this weekend, mm. um, part of what I was really hoping, and I think that we're all here for, um, is that you will be a, a, an asset and a blessing to our local churches um, and the places where we minister. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that you will be that. Uh, but I have some questions that I've written down. Okay. Some of them serious, some not so serious. Okay. But here's a, here's a big first question. Okay. What is biblical justice? What is biblical justice? Okay. Or are you going to be addressing that throughout the weekend? And what's that going to look like? Well, yes, we are going to talk about it throughout the weekend. But basically... Um, I think this is where you're going with this question. I haven't been prepped for anything, okay? So uh, this, is, this is like all made up. I'm like hearing these questions first. This is like reality TV, just without the TV part. Um, so uh, I think this is where you're going with the question is, it, I think when, so justice is a big issue in South Africa. Both we examine our past, we look at, uh, we look at where we are currently in South Africa, and we think about the future. And people are talking about justice. People are talking about restitution. People are talking about, about land. People are talking about redressing the past. And we, we are having these conversations all the time. Um, and, very, and the question is, what does the Bible have to say about this? Does the Bible have anything to say about this? Is God concerned about this? Um, strangely enough, my answer is yes, God has a lot to say about that. Because we don't just want to be, and I think there is a danger that we, we're caught up in this movement of the time, which I'm, I'm excited about. There's a movement, particularly I have a church, uh, the church I go to is full of, of younger people, millennials, and millennials are just excited about social justice. They want to do th uh, things for social justice. And so we, there's this movement, this exciting movement of, of people saying, we want to be about justice. We want to change the world. And, and, and that's, that's a good thing. But my question is, in one sense, is, what is, it, is that compatible with Scripture, first of all? And if it is, what is a particularly, what is a Christian understanding of social justice? What does a Christian understanding of justice mean? And what would it mean for us to act in justice spaces, in, in, um, in justice movements as, as uniquely Christian people? Um, what, what is the, how does the gospel shape and frame that? Does it? Yeah. But we're going to be talking a lot more about it the weekend, obviously, and explaining it and showing some of my kind of thinking and working, and not really mine, I'm just standing on the shoulders of giants before me who've done far smarter thinking than this, um, and saying, where do we see this in Scripture? What does it look like? So tomorrow, oh. uh, we're going to be doing, uh, having a session called Cross-Centered Justice. Mm -hmm. um, give me a Reader's Digest version of what that is going to be like. So basically what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking a look at the the Bible story in, I don't even know how long we got, not that long. So it's, I'm really taking a massive, massive chunk here. We're going to take a bird's eye view of the Bible story from creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And we're going to ask the question is, where do we see justice in the story? That's kind of your classic biblical paradigm. And we say, do we see God acting for justice? Do we see that, that the church ought to be acting for justice? Do we, do we see this as even part of that? So we're going to be giving a really a bird's eye view of scripture, asking where do we see justice and God's word together? Um, 
Thank you. I like it. And then Saturday, we'll be going through the cost of reconciliation, mm -hmm. the study of Philemon, mm -hmm. Reader's Digest. Reader's Digest? Yeah. Uh, well, don't tell me about Reader's Digest. Tell me, no. give me a short version of what this is going to look like. So, reconciliation is a big issue in South Africa. I think it's not a new issue. I think people have been struggling to be reconciled to each other since certainly the, the times of the Bible and and uh, well, certain times of the New Testament, certainly before that. And we ask, and I think we have a unique case study here of two two people who had become Christians together. So it's a particularly Christian study, and saying, what does it mean that these two so different people from so different worlds, where there's been injustice done between them, what does it mean that they can come together? How is that even possible? Now, I think that's a really relevant question for us today. And so we look at a book like, like uh, Philemon, and we say, so I'm going to say Philemon. I'm from South Africa, yeah, okay? Right. I don't know Philemon. I don't know Greek. I know Philemon Masinga. That's what I know. Okay, so it's Philemon, right? Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I'm just going. I'm going, yeah. So uh, um, anyway, so, so really, and I think we have this, this unique example, and, and we need to say, what principles, what values, what is, what is Paul saying? What is God saying as he spells it out in this particular book, in this particular time for these people? And how do we take those principles and start thinking about them in our context? And then lastly, a history of inequality. Right. So I think it's not and new. what could go wrong? No, I'm joking. Go ahead. I don't think it's new to anyone that South Africa has a history of massive inequality, racial, economic, and those things are... Are, are, are tied together, um, I think, and certainly this has been my journey, is realizing actually how integral the church has been to that journey, both uh, in times actually uh, being those who actually perpetrate and who um, create some of that inequality. Friends, we cannot be naive, to, and we have to realize that apartheid was a doctrine before it was a law. We've got to sit and we've got to own that. We're going to say, what does it mean to be a church in this country where that's true? So let's look at what is the legacy of the church. Let's look at the history of inequality, both as, as that, that, is, that is very often caused and perpetrated and um, helped to define this inequality, but also the doctrine of the gospel of grace, of equality of all believers that has actually sowed the seeds of change within Christ. So what, and how do we live? I think it's crucial that Many, so many of us, I think, don't really know our history very well. We don't understand why these issues are so deep and so real in society and in the church because we don't know our history. We've got to know where we've come from. And as we start to know where we've come from, as we start to know our story, if you're a believer in South Africa, this is your story. This is your legacy, like it or not, good, bad, ugly. It's like belonging to a family, right? There's parts of your family you're like, what? <laughs> That's my uncle? Ugh. We don't talk about that uncle. We don't. It's part, well, this is part of what it means to be part of the church. But we've got to talk about it. We're going to say, what have we done? And, what could we, and once we start having that, once we look at that, we go, Lord, what does it mean for us to have a different legacy going forward? How do we change things going forward so that your name is glorified? Um. So, yeah, so, so we're going to take a little bit of a history lesson now. I hope it's going to be exciting. It's going to have some time for reflection. It's going to tell some stories. Um, I think it's probably going to break your heart at times because um, it does to me. And we say, and, and we just cry out that biblical lament that happens in the Bible. You know, we don't, we don't lament a lot, you know. 
in the church in South Africa, in South Africa, in South Africa, where lament is not something we do. But it's, the Bible is full of lament. When we see our sin, when we see our sin as a people, when we see our sin as a nation, that's what happens to Israel. They pour out in lament. Um, I wonder if as a church we need to do more of that. Sorry, that was a little bit of, that was free. That was just side side question. Sorry. Um, good. Uh, so I have two questions which may or may not be combined. The first question is, what should my expectation be sitting here listening to you? What's Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, no, no. What should my expectation be for um, Am I going to walk away from here live Am I going to live a just life walking away from here? Right. Is, should that be my expectation? No. Is there a process of change? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, let's just start with that one, actually. So, obviously I can't talk for everyone and everyone's journey and what the Spirit's doing and, and, and everyone is different. But I imagine that if we are looking at these issues, if we're looking honestly and robustly, we're coming to Scriptures, we're studying Scriptures, saying, Lord, what are you teaching us? I think it's going to create a sense of disequilibrium in us. It's going to create a discontent in us. Uh, no, a discomfort, sorry. Maybe a discontent, but certainly a discomfort. I think as we, as we look, as we study Scripture, and we say, think, and we start a question, we say, how could we, as the church, have been a part of this? How could we acqu- have acquiesced? How could our good theology have created this? How could our good theology have created a situation like par- apartheid and the perpetuation of apartheid into this new South Africa, this so-called post-apartheid South Africa. I'm going to put my cards on the table up front. I'm going to say, I think the law of apartheid is dead. It's off the, it's off the record books. Off the record books, the, um, the, the law books. But the spirit of apartheid is alive and well today. Um, and I think that's what we've got to recognize. And in order to face that, as in to face any sins, as to face any, any weaknesses and failures of us as a church, as a people, as a nation, it, if we are open to that, if we're saying, Lord, show me, it's going to create this disequilibrium. Now, um, I, I was actually talking to Wade a little bit about this earlier, is that there's a process of, of change that happens. It's not particularly a Christian process, but I think it's a helpful way of understanding it that social scientists, I think psychologists, came up with this idea. It's called the U process of change. So what happens is an event happens, a crisis happens, and that may happen with you this weekend. As we look at it in Scripture, you may say, Lord, something's happening here. I'm having to, to, to question how I live in this country. I'm having to question aspects of my faith. I'm having to, to, to re-look at how I read Scriptures because I'm confronted with this fact that you're a God of justice and you want your people to be a people of justice. And, and it's, it's creating this disequilibrium in me. And we have this crisis moment. And what happens is, is in order for real change to happen, you have this kind of you process that happens. Where, and they kind of give different aspects of that where you start to, um, you start to define, you start to say, how are we feeling? How is this making me feel? How is this making us feel? How is this affecting us? So you, kind of, you start defining things. Then you start looking at what are the underlying behaviors that is, that is affecting that? What are the things that has that, that is been questioned that are being shaken up here? And you say, well, are there any foundational beliefs underneath that that are starting to be questioned? Maybe things I've always thought were biblical. Maybe things I've always thought are true. Now God's shaking it up and he's saying, you need to rethink that. And so you kind of go through this process. Now, this, 
as you, as you see this U process, what happens is you're kind of going down into this valley until you get to this point where at the bottom there's a decision of like, I've kind of mined this, this uncomfort, this discomfort, and now I'm at this point where I'm saying, is there, is there a will to change? And it, this could be a communal thing as well. And then you start rebuilding and you start working that process in reverse until, and I mean, this is not a perfect process. Obviously, it's probably more like this for most of us. But you're coming to this point where you're going, there has been a re-equilibrium. I've kind of worked through, I've reshaped my practices, uh, the way we do church, the theology, my, my understanding of our country, whatever it is. Um, and this is the same for business or anything like that. And we come to this place of re-equilibrium. It's not quite that simple. But here's the thing is, many of us, we get to that point, and we have this crisis. We have this, it feels yuck. It feels uncomfortable. I, I, I feel like I want to fix it, right? You know, you have this thing, you want to fix it. So instead of actually allowing us to live in that discomfort, allowing us to live with that disequilibrium, and kind of letting say, God, work this in me. Let me, let me really go deep. Let us go deep in this. We want, we want to quickly fix it. We want to go across the top of the U. And we have quick fixes. So for instance, I think that's, very likely what happened in South Africa as a country, isn't it? 1994 came about. We were like, oh, we've done wrong. We need to change. Things need to happen. Okay. Hey, we won the Rugby World Cup, the African Cup of Nations. It's the Rainbow Nation. Madiba came out wearing a shirt. Hey, we must be all fine. Yeah. But what's actually changed? What's actually changed? Because we as a country, we as a people, we as the church, haven't gone through this deep place of wrestling, of uncovering and saying, what? Are the, how was it possible that our good theology allowed apartheid to prosper, allowed many of us to benefit from this without, without barely a word? You see, now that's a very uncomfortable place to be. That is a very uncomfortable, but that's a place where God's going to really work. So what I'm going to, so really the, the kind of the short, the, the summary version, I know it's a long answer, but really what I'm saying is this weekend, if God is working in you, you're feeling discomfort, you're feeling that disequilibrium, resist the urge for a quick fix. Live in that discomfort for a bit. Live in the disequilibrium. I'm not saying you've got to do it alone. Get some other people around and saying, I, I, I don't know what to do with this. I need to read more. I need to pray more. I need, I, I need to learn more. But resist the quick fix. We've done it as a country. We've done it as a church very often. It hasn't worked. It's not going to work in your life. It's not going to bring real transformative change where you see the power of God changing and, and, and restoring and, 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 and reshaping you. That's what's going to really change us as individuals, us as a church, and hopefully us as a country. Anyway, that's, that's a very long answer. Sorry. Okay. No, that's good. Um... I think I have just a couple more questions, and then we can open it up for questions as well. Um, but, John, you know we've had some uh, land disputes going on here. Okay. Uh, here and there, you know, just okay. little minor things. Uh, right. And I think that we would both agree that there's a maybe not a biblical answer that satisfies all the political side of that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we could say that we could look to Scripture for principles and for as churches and how to navigate in those conversations. Right. Um, and just recently, last weekend actually, you had your land restitution forum, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, the weekend before, yeah. Okay, how did that go? What did that sound like? Um, well, okay, it, 
so we had four different speakers, um, just each giving 10 minute input. So we, we looked at four, we looked at, we, um, we had uh, Peter Macapella from Christchurch Strand looking at uh, just exploring the issue of black landlessness in the church and trying to work, trying to just give us some thoughts on that. We had Lindiwe and Porfo talking about uh, Zimbabwe and land reforms and, and, and particularly uh, thinking about the role of women and how that's affected women. We had Ryan Saville from Jubilee Community Church talking about um, uh, forced removals, the, uh, reflecting a lot on the colored experience in Cape Town, uh, and particularly saying what is the legacy of the church on that. And then we had my, and then I spoke a little bit on um, on white fear and repentance around the issue of the land. Um, so it was four very different voices. So and, and that was intentional. I think we need we need a diversity of voices in the church. Um, and then we just had a lot of questions and answers, and we spoke. Uh, widely about that. Um, I'm not sure I'm getting your question exactly. That, that, no, that's, no, that's, that's good. That's I what we did here. Yeah. Okay. I know my accent is difficult to understand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. Sorry, what was that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your lips are moving. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, uh, then one last question for mm. me, and that would relate to, so all of us here are in some way involved in ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, looking out at everyone, I'm pretty sure that all of us uh, work with people that are not of our own culture, mm-hmm. um, and all of us are, for the most part, from Hermanus. So we, uh, okay, I'm not, okay, I'm sorry, everyone, I know, um, but we all live in Hermanus, experience Hermanus, and there's not a day goes by that I'm not in a conversation where uh, maybe a lot of these issues come up, mm-hmm. and they're spoken about in not the healthiest of ways. Right. So, I'm not asking for rules necessarily, mm-hmm. but as we go through this weekend and as we speak to people in our churches and our life groups, whatever it is, what's a healthy way to have these conversations? And are there are there certain times when we need to shut conversations down? Are there certain times where we need to encourage conversation? To come out more and more, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'll let you handle it. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to admit that's a very big question. Yeah. Uh, so I'm just going to give a couple of thoughts, and you can come back on me. I, th- I think the one thing is, what, what's the best way to have these conversations? I, th- I think a rule of thumb is, if you're having these conversations with, with people that all look like you, they're probably not going to be the best conversations. If you really want to have conversations, it needs to be with people. It needs to be with people who think differently who look at scripture differently, who've, who've had different experiences with you in the room. Because, let's be honest, we all have our blind spots. And in South Africa, those blind spots have very often been institutionalized. They've been trained. They're intentional. Uh, certainly, I'm, I'm a middle-aged white male. I'm a product of an apartheid system. It is, no, it is not a mistake that I find white supremacy in myself. It's not a mistake. It was designed and it was intentional. I don't, have to, I don't have to continue like that. But until I sit in a room and I listen, I, I listen, and I give authority, and when, a, when in someone else, when a black woman speaks, I am listening. I am not presuming to be the expert. And I have to fight that because I've been trained differently. Um, so people who are not like you in the room and really listen. I'm going to suggest if you're, if you're white, like myself, you probably need to learn to talk less. Listen more. Our voices have been centered in this country. Our voices, the conversation is centered upon our voices being loudest, being dominant, being the most authoritative. 
And again, it's not a surprise that we, we think that. It's not a surprise we act like that. We need to learn to descent our voices, and that's extremely hard. I'm an extrovert who talks a lot. So I, I don't even, I, I struggle with this. It just is a personality thing. But I need to learn to be quiet sometimes. Um, a lot. I need to learn, listen. I need to say there are different ways of understanding the world. There are different perspectives. There are different life experiences here. I do not understand what it is like to grow up in a township. And that's, that's a fact. I, a child of four years old knows more about township life than a male of 42 years old. So what that, that makes me an infant in understanding the world of living in a township. Now that brings a big dose of humility to me, doesn't it? I can't come in with all the answers because a four-year-old knows more than me. So, you know, go find your mommy. I mean, I'm being facetious, but that's what I'm saying. Like, that's who I am. So I've got to listen a lot more. Um, uh, you're going to say, is there a time to shut down conversations? Absolutely. I think there's a time to shut down conversations. There's a time when a conversation is hurtful. There's a, there's a time when I need to say, and, and honestly, if I, speak from, if I speak as a white male, just understand that's what I am, okay? <laughs> so I'm going to say, there's a time when I need to say to my white brothers and sisters, I need to say, you need to stop talking right now. What you are saying is hurtful, it is disrespectful, it is causing immense pain to a black brother or sister, a colored brother or sister who has already seen tremendous pain and hurt, and you maybe are ignorant, maybe you are not meaning to be hurtful, but you are. You need to stop talking, you need to start listening. We're not having this conversation now because you don't understand what's going on. Um, and, and that's sometimes, and I want to say this because I think we, we need to. Um, we, we need to understand this. Um, Eusebius Mekaiser, I don't know if you're familiar with him, you listen to 702 or you read some, and I think he's a very helpful social commentator at times. Um, and uh, Eusebius Mekaiser says, he talks about the fact that we need to dis differentiate two kinds of racists in this country. There is the, what he calls the, the bloody racist, not in a, in a crude way, but just saying like, it's, it's out there, you can see it, there's like blood all over, it's like the the, the, the person who's like, you know, throwing out the K-word, uh, maybe waving the old South African flag, who's saying blacks need to be put in their place. That, that, we can spot that guy, right? He's easy to spot. You're like, that guy's a racist. It's, it's no, and very often when we think about racists, we think of that guy. But that's the easy one. But there's that insidious, well-meaning, good-intentioned, white supremacy that is living in the hearts of all of us. And when I say all of us, I mean white people, yes, because we believe we're superior. And also in the, in the, in the hearts of black and colored people, very often because they believe they are inferior. Because that is what our education system is very, and our apartheid system, and that, that spirit of apartheid that's still living has been trained to make black and colored people think. So, yes. Um, there's a time to shut down conversations. There's a time when it's hurtful, it's disrespectful, and we need just to listen. But there's also, yeah, anyway, I, I think I've answered the question. Okay, yeah. Given a few suggestions, I should say. Any other ground rules we should be aware of in, in conversations, even amongst ourselves? Yeah, I can go on. I mean, okay, this, yeah, this yeah, is well, a huge well, debate. I'm like, I feel like I'm just talking here. <laughs> uh, so another ground rule I'd say is don't be afraid of emotion. Don't be afraid of emotion, and don't try to police it. So I think um, these are painful issues. These are hurtful issues. Um, people are going to get angry. 
People are going to get very angry. There's been, do you know what? If you don't get angry at injustice, there is something wrong with you. I even want to say, if you're not angry in some way at injustice, is that even, is that sinful? If you are okay with injustice, does that mirror the heart of God? Not, not the one I read in Scripture. So actually, it's, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to bring up strong emotions. Now, if you've been, if you've been a repeated uh, um, victim of, of, of oppression and injustice, the, those feelings are very real. They're big feelings. They're, they're almost sometimes uncontrollable feelings. So, so don't be afraid of, of, of fear. Don't be afraid of tears. Don't be afraid of, of anger. Don't be afraid. Of, I mean, it sounds weird, but even if there's a fear coming up in you, as let's own those feelings. Let's figure out how we deal with one another respectfully with the gospel in our center so we don't, we, we, we try not to get in personal attacks. Uh, we, we try to do that. We, but, but let's not tell people, don't be so angry. What's the big deal? No, let's, let's say, what do we do with that anger? Well, we take it to the cross, don't we? We take it to the cross. We say, Jesus, how do I deal with this anger? And that may not be a quick fix solution. So don't hear me say we go to the cross and you just need to forgive, brother. Absolutely, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's the end goal. But that may take years to get to. And we need to see sanctification. We need to see the gospel at work in us as a deep, long-seated project of renewal. Long-term, rather, project of renewal. That sometimes it happens quickly, but very often. And think about your own life. Think about other issues. I don't become a Christian and suddenly... Hey, I don't have a problem with uh, sexual impu- sexually impure thoughts or greed or pride. No, these are long-term issues. Why should I expect my inbuilt racism to be any different? Why? No. So I need to be constantly assessing that. I need to be constantly working. I'm constantly saying, Jesus, change my heart. I don't. I see. I'll show it to me and change it. Anyway. Um, I would like others to ask questions now. So if you have a question. That would be great. If you want to think about a question, I'm sure John can keep talking for a while. I'll do this. You want a song or something? Yeah, to go get... ahead and sing. No, don't sing. <laughs> yeah, please. John, um, is racism uh, white versus black problem? Does one need the word reverse racism when you want to say black is white in a bad way? Hmm. Okay, uh, so this is a big question. I, um, I think, so I don't subscribe to reverse racism. I want to say there's a number of schools of thought on this, okay? So just to be fair in that, and that I think, um, and I, I think I'm in agreement with this, that I think racism, so there's prejudice, which is you're making distinctions on people, and that's, that can be male, female, that can be disability, that can be sexual orientation. You're making, you're making judgments and you're treating people in a certain way because they're different to you. And that, so that can be anything. That can be foreign, local. So, and I think that's going on. And I, can, that, can black people be prejudiced? Absolutely. I, and, and I, I want to admit that I think there's, there's a rule of thought. I don't, I don't know if I can say this is strictly biblical, so I'm just going to give you. I think that racism is tied to power. So I think racism is the ability to treat people and to oppress people based on your prejudice, but to treat them in a way that you have the power to oppress them. So in very ways, can, so, and this is a big debate, so white people have had that power and, they, and still very often do, contain, do have that economic power, so white people are able to oppress, are able to be racist, but I think it's very hard for, it's very unlikely that black people can be racist because they don't have the power to, to take 
what may be prejudices and, uh, implement, and uh, inflict those on white people in a systematic, wholesale way that leaves white people at an economic, political, social disadvantage. Now, I'm going to recognize this, there's multiple schools of thoughts there. Um, is, is that... So maybe it's just a... It's an issue of using... Uh, it's not just a vocabulary issue, yeah. but racism versus everyday prejudice sure. thought. Okay. Yeah, yeah. John, can I? Um, my question has to do with. Uh, I sometimes wonder to what extent uh, hyper or an oversensitivity uh, plays a part. Uh, I just, I, and whether this is the case or not, but the, the thought comes to mind if I think about um, Ashwin Bimsa and mm -hmm. you know the whole you know Ashwin Bimsa blurb. If you're not aware of it, then go Google it. Um, <laughs> And to what extent uh, did he get upset, possibly, because of uh, just a, a work relationship, a clash right. of personalities, and a, I'm better than you because I'm more experienced than you, and I, I, I speak better English than you, sure. which has nothing to do with racism, possibly, but he possibly interprets that in a very racist way. Mm -hmm. How do the two feed into each other, possibly? I'm, I'm sure. Okay, so you guys are starting off nice and easy. I'm glad. I'm looking forward to this weekend. You try to find me tomorrow, I'm gone, you know. Um, if, these are, if this is the warm-up questions, uh, anyway. Uh, you're well so <laughs> Thank you. By the way, there's a Q&A every day. Yeah, okay, go what? ahead. What? No, okay. No, okay. So, um, okay, wait. So, just, so, I want, I want to ask this in so many ways. So, I, I okay, so cards on the table. I think the Ashwin Valencia incident was there. I disagree with Supersport, and I don't have all the facts, but I think there is a racial element. I think it is racially based, and here's why: because we live in South Africa, and so people always say, "Why do we make everything about race?" And I think it's simply this: because everything is about race in South Africa. We live in a highly racialized society still to this day, where where um, where uh, people, the color of people's skin. We, we make assumptions about them. We ascribe uh, meaning to that. We ascribe certain characteristics and traits to people based on the color of their skin. And like I said, that is inbred in us. We have, it's, it's, the, it's the, the air we breathe. It's the water we swim in. None of us have got out alive. I think that's, we just got to draw that line and say, none of us have got out alive from apartheid. None of us got, got alive, from, alive from this racialized society. So, um, and again... I, I'm not privy to all the facts, but I'm just, when I look at an incident that happened with Ashwin Melissa with Nas Boita and Nick Mallett, and, and there, are, there are cases where you can see and you go Google it, and there are cases of them undermining him. Now, it may be, and particularly some of the videos I've seen of Nick Mallett doing that, and it may just be that Nick Mallett's a particularly obnoxious person, but it's linked to race. But why is he doing it to Ashwin Willemsa and not to Nas Boita? Who, let's be honest, his English is not that fantastic either. No, I mean, like, let's be honest. And, and, oh, and while we're at it, who made English the, 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 um, the yardstick of intelligence? Who made English? <laughs> yeah, you, might, you might be missing me here, okay. Okay. So, but, but I mean, no, it's true. So here's the thing is, so who made that? Because honestly, that is it. Ashton Willemsen mixes up his is's and R's and 
So what does that make him unable to comment on rugby? No, it means he's, he's an Afrikaans speaker. I'd like to hear Nick Mallet speak Afrikaans, by the way, or Zulu for that matter. Um, he, may be, he may be perfectly fluent, but he's probably like all of us going to make mistakes. So there's that humility. Um, so anyway, so what I'm saying is that I think what has happened in South Africa, because there is a hypersensitivity, if you want to call it that, but it's a hypersensitivity created by a continual dripping, undermining of people of color in this country. And you, and you don't have to ask me. Go ask people how they feel. Go ask people what they hear. So when you look at the reaction of, of, of probably almost every black and colored person or Indian person to what's happened, they're going, yeah, I know that. That's exactly what happened because that's what I experience. That's what I experience. And so it, it makes sense because that's what we do. That's what's happening in this country. We, have, we make prejudgments about people based on their skin color, based on where they come from, based on how well they speak English. We do that because we live in a racialized society. It's not a mistake. And it's in the church. It is in the church. So I'm going to say, like, who are, I mean, no surprise. Who are our conference speakers? Why are you guys all sitting here listening to me? Because I'm going to tell you now, in your churches, in your communities, in your denominations, black and colored people have been saying this stuff for years, and you haven't been listening. So, but now... I mean, we put a fancy banner up, and you all come listen to me. So please come back tomorrow. But, um, but uh, no, but, I'm, but I'm, I'm very serious. That is what happens. Um, so I think as white people, and I don't know if you're saying this, I think we have to be very careful to call things hypersensitivity. I think we need to recognize what the lived experience of, I mean, he's black. Uh, can, I just, can I just quickly, so I know, black, I'm going to use it in the Steve Biko sense, where he says, that all non-white people are black, he uses in that sense. And I realize some people have different opinions about the, the use of that term, but for succinct sake, would, is everyone okay if I just use black in a Steve Biko sense? Yeah? So incorporate, okay. So black, the, black, the experience of black people in this country is that that constant undermining and being uh, doubted and questioned based on their skin color in this country. So when that happens, it is natural for someone like Ashton Villains, Ashton Villains to say, I've had enough. I can't take this anymore. And every single black and colored person on my time on my Facebook page is going, I know that and I experience that every day. So, because we live in a racialized society. Is that answering your question? I've kind of like, okay. I feel like, it's, again, it's such a big question. I'm just like pulling out things and my mind is going in about five directions as I'm saying one sentence. So, so this might be a dummy question. but I'm kind There are no of dummy, dummy questions, Wade. Okay, all right. But you uh, might be an enemy. So, <laughs> how active then do we have to be in seeking out people that are not like us to talk to them? Or can't we just let this happen naturally? Okay. Uh, I think we have to be very active and we have to be very intentional. Uh, and we do it in relationships and we do it at, at uh, we choose black people and we let black people set the pace as well, please. Please, white people, don't come. Let's not go forcing ourselves out. Hey, we need to be friends now because I've got to understand this racism thing. So please, would you explain your pain to me and why this is such a big deal? And what happened with Ashwin Willemse? Like, like build a relationship. Let Because pe people's story is people's pain. And if a black person says, I don't want to share my pain with you, that's their prerogative. My story is not for your show. We, we like parading people's pain. We do that in church all the time. We call it testimony sometimes. But it's actually hurtful. 
And a bunch of white people sit around and feel bad and get a complex. And actually, a black person has put his pain on, on, on display for us. And then when, when that black person wants to be in a leadership position, we say, You're not, we say you, need to, you need to wait. You need to learn more. You need to grow more. But yet, we've already kind of had this voyeur position of their pain. I, I'm, I'm being really honest here, guys. I've done it, okay? We, we have done it. We need, to, we need to stop. We need to learn. So we need to be very intentional. And one of the reasons... So, one of the reasons we need to be very, very intentional about this at the black person's pace uh, is because apartheid was a very intentional, systematic, deliberate attempt to get us just to exactly not to do that. We're, I mean, you guys, you guys are in Amarna, so you guys are a little closer together. I come from Cape Town, people. Cape Town is such a heavily divided city along rail, railway lines and roads. It is intentionally and systematically designed in such a way that you don't have to interact with people who are different to you. That you never have to see where they live. You never have to come in contact with their family. Because if it just happens naturally, naturally means you're going to naturally be with the people who live where you are. So a best case scenario is you're going to interact with someone who's economically on the same level as you. Who's perhaps a black person who's decided that who's, got, who's become more uh, westernized and who's maybe a, a, adapted some of those habits. But you're, you're actually never going to meet as an equal with someone in the township, someone who lives in Bonteville, Manenberg, on the K Flats, unless you intentionally seek it out, unless you intentionally find ways to talk to people. Let's, let's never forget that, in, that apartheid was intentional, systematic, deliberate, and we are naive at best. We have a vested interest, more likely, because we don't want to be confronted with our own sin if we think that that will just magically dissolve on its own. I mean, can I just say, I want to say final sentence, then I'll give it. The, the, sometimes we make the mistake of thinking the, the men, because it would be men, who put together apartheid, they were, they were idiots. Like, that was so silly. How could they be so racist? We probably don't say it like it, but we kind of think it like it. Oh, we know better now. No, they're not idiots. They were geniuses. Evil geniuses. Please hear the evil part. They were evil geniuses because what they set out to do, they did it with such breathtakingly brilliance that today, after 20-odd years after apartheid is off the statute books, it is still dominating our life and our structures and the way our cities are built and shaped. So let's never forget that things will just not just happen naturally. We need to be intentional about it. Yeah, no, I, I, so I mean, two things is one, yes, I mean, I think there, there is prejudice, there is cultural pride, there's, there's all the normal things that divide people. I mean, we, we, I, I could name five other things, which I think is your point. We can talk about there's, there's religious factions, there's, uh, there's, there's the way people treat, the, the treatment of women, the treatment of, uh, of people who are disabled, there's all kinds of things, and, and those also forms of prejudice. What I want to so I just want to pick up on on what you said the the um, antagonism I think was your your word you're pulling out your English you're trying to impress me after <laughs> please don't impress me it's okay my English is not so good all the time anyway um, but yeah um, uh, I'm 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 a skipper's but I'm an English guy so I'm already I'm already on the back foot with you we're gonna send you outside in a minute okay. <laughs> This, this guy's a farmer. He's for real Afrikaans. You know, I'm like Afrikaans light here. I just got a name. He, like, don't go. Okay. Um, so, uh, what was I saying? Oh, I was going to say the, the, the antagonism between colored people and black people in particular is real. And it actually is because of a hierarchy. 
So the apartheid government, there's a divide and conquer mentality. So colored people were told they are better than black people. That it is, and I tell you, I think if you go to areas, so areas like, um, so for instance in Cape Town, there's an area like Manenberg over here and Guggeletto over there. Some of the worst hatred that you'll see across is between those areas. Some of the most vile uh, forms of, of um, I'm going to use the word of, of prejudicial language. I've heard from, from the language of colored people speaking about black people. Okay? But the apartheid government was smart because they also said, and again, this, the spirit still lives on. They said, if, we, if, if all these different people get together, there's, there's a power in that, there's a strength in that, but if we can divide them up, if we can conquer them up, and so particularly between colored people and black people and Indian people, that's why that whole racial classification system happened, you know, because they wanted to keep people separate. They said, if you're a colored person, you're better than a black person. That's what it's all. So I know, I know families, I know families who the family is black, but there's a light-skinned child that was born, and that child, that person got reclassified as a colored person. There are parts of families who changed their names so that they, because they were light-skinned, to disassociate themselves from their black family so they could get the greater prestige of being a colored family. Now, yes, the, there's individual sin and prejudice and all that going on in people's hearts, so I don't want to deny that, but the apartheid government was feeding that. It wasn't an accident that people said it is better to be colored than black because you're one step closer to being white. There's a survival element. There's this, it, it's also it's feeding into people's natural prejudices and sins, which is there. It, and it doesn't take a lot to feed it. <laughs> I mean, I'm just speaking from my heart. I can't speak from anyone else. So, so yes, sin is real. But I think sin is far deeper than we, we often want to imagine. So, yeah, I, I'm just touching on a couple of things there. So, and that is true. It does happen naturally. So that's what I'm saying. But I think, but I think in South Africa, I think we have the laws. We have the systems, we have the classifications to say that this was different. So it took those natural prejudices, which happened naturally quite right. We don't need to be taught to hate. I mean, we don't need to be taught to be prejudiced because all of us wants to believe. And this is, I think this is the essence of sin in one sense. All of us wants to believe we're better than the other person. And however we want to define that. So I, I think you're right. But apartheid put, took that and put it into laws, into classifications, into, I mean, down to the minutia of every little detail of life was planned. I mean, you could, I mean, think about it. Think about this. You couldn't sit on the same bench as someone of a different race. Like, what is that really going to do? We're keeping it separate. We're saying that's for special people and that's not. Because we know you're going to have to sit. We know you're going to have to eat. So it's just the minutiae is what... And, and, I, and you know they say the devil's in the details. And I mean, in this case, you might really, literally want to say the devil is in the details. And that's what made apartheid so well, because the devil was in all those details. Any other questions? Yeah. Oh, jeez. Coming from the United States, Take up too much time going into the, the details good. of that, but um, 
So, for instance, where chattel slavery was in the United States, uh, over time, that chattel slavery turned into indentured servitude, which would maybe sometimes turn into people getting paid a little bit of money for their work, um, then which would turn into people moving north in the United States. But even when that started happening, uh, people of color in the United States had different uh, rates of interest for loans. Mm. Um, cities were very similarly divided up um, by what they called redlining. And so within these redlined areas, you could get certain loan rates in these areas. And in white areas, you could get better loan rates. And because of the distribution of wealth and all that kind of stuff that we're even talking about here, um, people of color did not have the opportunity to get better interest rates, which mm. usually meant defaulting on loans, which usually <coughs> meant getting houses taken away from them, so on and so forth. Um, I would say that in the States, there was a kinder, gentler um, separation, um, which turned into... Churches being separate, um, which turned into what we have going on there now, mm. uh, which is just generally speaking, uh, places everywhere are developing more. You have different colors of people moving all over the map, um, and it, it, yeah, <laughs> it reaps bad fruit if I can say it like that. Mm. Where. Um, it's only now that we are really getting a picture for the ugliness of our dislike and our racism and our hatred for one another. Mm. Or just um, not understanding one another. Not understanding one another. Um, I mean, my wife and I got to uh, go to an African-American church, which I know is a funny term to everyone, but we got to go to an African-American church for a little while, and it was a lot of fun. And we were very welcomed there and loved there. Um, and it was so far outside of our comfort zone. Hmm. That's why we went there, just to get a feel for it, really. Um, but Martin Luther King Jr. famously said that the most segregated time in the United States is you know, 9 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And that's, that's still very much true today. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if we have anything to to offer I think maybe sometimes in these conversations about uh, reconciliation um, from a biblical perspective we sometimes have something to offer there um, but then again the South African context is so much different mm. So can I, I just want to clarify, just when I said racialized, I think it's helpful to say racialized, it means we are making value judgments on someone based on their skin. That's what I mean, and so black people are lazy or whatever, okay. So I, so in terms of racial diversity, I believe that's God-given. I'm not saying we get away. I, I think, I think a, a black or a male must be proud of that. Uh, I, think, I think that's right. I think we, we are created in God's image, all of us with our cultural differences, uh, e even if they're social constructs, I think that's part of what God's doing. And yes, cultures have positive and negative. So I, I want to say that I affirm that. I don't believe in colorblindness. I, don't, I think it's a uh, defunct theory. Um, you can ask me about that if you want to. Because I want to focus on this question, not get myself sidetracked. So how do we do that? 
Um, I think when we come to the Bible, I, I think we do that because the Bible compels us. So when I look in Scripture, I see, I see the Bible time and time again. It says in Ephesians 2, it says the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down between Jews and Gentiles. And yes, there's, there's a religious element to that, but there's a cultural, there's a racial element to that. I mean, Gentiles were called dogs. I mean, that, that, that's, that's, an, that's an insult. You don't get much more insulting than And so I see it in Ephesians 2, and it says, you, the dividing wall of hostility has, has come down. You are together in the church. You, the, there are one new humanity. So our theology says, if we understand what's happen, happening in the gospel, we need to be moving towards that. In fact, I want to even suggest that I think the, one of the biggest issues that Paul is speaking to again and again and again in the New Testament is racial exclusivity in the guise of religious exclusivity. So why don't Jewish people want, the Jewish Christians want the Gentiles in the church? Do you think it's only about, I mean, it certainly is about circumcision, but it's, it's, there's a racial pride in going, we are the circumcised, you are the uncircumcised. And Paul's going, what does circumcision matter? We're together in Christ. So, so I, I think there's a, there's a theological emphasis there. Um, I think when, and we come to passages like um, Galatians, Colossians, where it says, that, um, you know, we're all one in Christ, barbarian, a Scythian, uh, slave, or free. And we look at that. I think we look at that, and Paul says, and, and that's not saying to try to get rid of those differences. It's saying we, the people who should never have been together, are together. Ephesians, Ephesians, that's the mystery of the gospel. How will Jews and Gentiles come together in the gospel? Because of Jesus. So, so, so yes, because of Jesus, but because of that, we should expect to see that. So, that just, I, I'm giving a theological emphasis there. How do we do that? I think with a lot of pain and a realization it's going to be a long and difficult road. I think there are no quick fixes. I think sometimes as, as churches, what we've done is we think that when we get we, we, we identify diversity as the goal. So we say, as long as we can get different races in the room together, we are winning. And I want to suggest that diversity is not the goal. Diversity is the starting point. So just because we have different people in the room together doesn't mean we're listening to them, we're taking them seriously. I want to ask you, who still has the power? And unless we've interrogated those power dynamics that are prevalent in our society, it'll be the same people who always have take the power in our society, and that's probably going to be white, middle-aged males like myself. So I'm, I'm implicated here, okay? Um, so we need to look at that. We need to, and so we get, the, we get the right people in the room, and then we say, let us listen, let us hear, speak to us, what do you say? We, we give people power, give people authority. I think, more, I think as... And again, I'm sorry if I'm harping on white people. It's just, this is what I know. I think white people need to learn to sit under the authority of black pastors. So I think what Toomey's done is a fantastic thing. I, I think that is, that is a profound, I think it's a profound fruit that the gospel's at work in us. We're saying we have this inbuilt white supremacy. That is our idol. It's our idolatry. If Jesus is conquering our idols, if Jesus is taking us, can I sit under the authority, listening and hearing and learning from someone who is so profoundly different to me. Someone in the world says I should never be. Someone in the world has, I've been taught is actually, diff- is actually inferior to me. The gospel's turning those power dynamics on its head because of Jesus, the one who had all the power and all the might and all the majesty, and he did not consider equality with God something to cross, but he laid down his life. Now, if, if, if Jesus is our model, 
If we, if we, follow, if we say that's what it means to live, that's what it means to, have my, to be redeemed, to be part of this new kingdom with different power dynamics, we start changing things there. I, 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 yeah, I think, I think that's it. And that's why I'm saying racism is coming from well-meaning, kind, good-intentioned people who, who don't think they're racist. And that's what we've got to realize. It's deep in us, and we need to lead Jesus' context of our idols. So I agree with you. And sometimes we need to say, not let it mean more than it. We need to say, maybe there's more going on here. Maybe. Because so, here's the thing is, we, like, we always want to say, oh, Ashton Williams shouldn't have done that. I'm just going to use it because he shouldn't have done that. He should have controlled it. But why did he do that? We need to stop and we need to ask that why question. We can say, black people are so angry. I mean, the student protests, I saw this. People were saying, why are they burning things? Are they just burning things? They're not getting a point across. Why are people burning things? How, could, how do people get to a point of being so angry and so frustrated that the only way out they can see is to burn something? Do you get up in the morning and think, today, I'm going to burn some stuff. Okay, if you are, you've got a different kind of problem, right? But most of us who are normal are not getting up like that. So ask yourself, what would it take to get you to that point where you're saying, the only way people are going to hear me and take my voice seriously is if we do something like this? Because when you do that, you're saying, how have I, how have we as a society, how have we created these circumstances and these these, um these circumstances that have allowed people to get to that state. You see, now we're implicated too. Now that issue doesn't become those people's issue, it becomes our issue. We're all of us together. And I think you're right, in Christ, there's a, there's a servant, there's a laying down of our life and saying, because if I don't have Christ, I, I, can, I can quite rightly say, I think as a human being without Christ, I can say, why should I care? Why should I care? It's their issues, their problem. I've got the money, I've got the power, I've got the wealth, who cares? They just And I can believe that. But as a Christian, we, we are compelled by Christ to think of others more highly than ourselves. So, so, so follow me the logic. We say, that person who I dis- fundamentally disagree with their action, I, if I'm thinking of them more highly than myself, why would a person like that do that? Now, let me say, you see, it's, it's not changing your whole attitude. Only Christ only realizing what Christ has done on our behalf and changing us can actually do that in us. Yeah, It's, it's a dying to self. Yeah. I, I, I think Christ is absolutely our means of salvation, but I think he, he's also, it's like, what does it say? Take up your cross and come follow me. Live in this world in the, in the way that, that, that I live. live in, using, so that the cross is our model. The cross shapes our life. What does it mean to live a cross-shaped life? It's, it's got, it's got, it can't be me standing there going, you people, no, no, no. Because imagine Jesus did that to us. He was perfectly within his rights to do that. <laughs> you guys messed up my world. You messed up your lives. You've damaged other people. Kapu, kapow. That sounded cool in my head. Uh, you're gone. And no one, well, no one be left, but no one could say, you're unjust. See? Now, what if we follow that example? We say, even, so, and, and just for a minute, if anyone's attending the thing and saying, well, they're not deserving, and I, I, I don't agree with that, but guess what? You were not deserving and Christ loved you. Christ died for you when you were undeserving, unrepentant. So we don't wait for people to clean up their act. We don't wait for people to get deserving. We love them, we serve them, we say, what would it mean to reach out and love and serve those people to understand them? 
Whether they're deserving or not is irrelevant. Whether they repent or not is irrelevant. We love them like Christ loved us. Now that is an incredibly difficult thing to do. You know what? We need Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit. We need His help. Only He can do this. You go to the cross. So you, we go to Jesus. Jesus is our power. Oh, like, we got one song in the church, right? It's Jesus. That's, this is our song. So, so, and I'm not trying to be facetious here, and I'm not trying to give a simple answer, but how do I combat my fear? What am I scared of? I'm scared of losing my stuff. I have all the riches of Christ in heaven in the spiritual realms. I am guaranteed, if you, if you give up these things for me in this life, you'll, be, you'll gain fathers and mothers and husbands and fields and all these wonderful promises. Seek first my kingdom. I mean, we, we kind of spiritualize those sometimes because particularly those of us who, who know what it's like to have stuff, we're like, well, God's talking about how I must put him first and stuff. What if following Jesus actually required us to give up stuff? What if we actually lost it? Because we loved people who didn't respond to our love. Because if we served people who, who took our stuff. I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm, like, I'm just throwing that around. I'm like, that's what I mean. You see, what do we have to fear? What if we lose our stuff? What if we lose our life? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And, I know, and trust me, it's easy sitting on this stool. You guys look nice. I, that is an incredibly hard thing. But that's why I need to preach the gospel to my heart every single day. And I need my brothers and sisters to preach the gospel to my heart and say, if we, to follow Christ, in, the, to, to, to follow Christ in, the, in this country is going to be incredibly hard because we need to undo the past that has happened in the name of Jesus because only Jesus can change these things. So, yeah, the fear is real. I think we need to, I think we need to speak about the fear, though. I think too much, too much pretending it's not there. We need to speak about it, and then we need to speak the gospel to the fear. And when you say, look, I know this is real. I know you know this is true. But I'm going to tell you anyway, for me to live is Christ to die is gain. How are we going to help you believe that today? And, and while we're at it, how are you going to help me to believe this today? Um, what would it mean for me to give up my stuff? Is my identity found in my stuff? What if I was to voluntarily give up my stuff? To say, I, if we could see, like, I've inherited this land unjustly. And you say, I know who this land belongs to. I should return this land to this person. Because that's, I mean, isn't that what, what we ought to do? Okay. And I know that's a lot more complicated. I'm talking about direct line, okay? We can see I, this land somehow. Yeah, it's getting late now. Eh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, no, no, no. We can talk, I can talk a lot about land, don't worry. Uh, you can go on the internet, I've already spoken. But I mean, if, if there's a direct thing, we say, what do we mean to give up this? Seek first my kingdom. Isn't that to seek the kingdom of God? To repent, to make right the wrongs I've done. Not just say a prayer, Jesus, I repent. It's actually to go and make amends for where I've been wrong. So, yeah, there's a lot of fear, and I think some of that fear is about what we're going to lose. Because we don't... Why? Because this is some kind of liberal, socialist, Marxist kind of... No, because we don't believe the gospel. What Jesus says... You, you, uh, I mean, he says, he who gives up his life gains life. I think I'm messing up the verse now, but I'm, I'm not getting all mixed up. But I mean, to, and that's what it means. It doesn't only mean, it means you're preaching the gospel and perhaps people are offended and so you, you, you get martyred for the gospel. It means that, but it also means making right, restoring all things, repenting, turning around 180. And you were, anyway, I'm, I'm going on, sorry. But I hope, I hope that's somewhat helpful. 
Um, I don't want it to be platitude. So if you hear me saying, oh, just believe the gospel and everything will be fine. Yeah, we believe the gospel, but it's incredibly hard to believe that. And we need to help one another to believe that. And we need to say, what does it mean to believe the gospel in this context? So, yeah. Okay. So, so two things. I'm going to disagree with you and then agree with you. So first, I'm going to disagree with you because I think you've just ignored the whole Old Testament, which is... I'm disagreeing with you because I think um, the, the Bible does speak to the current national injustices. It, it, I mean, it speaks to the whole nation repeatedly within the Old Testament. So, and, I, and, and the reason I'm saying that is, and I know it's a theocracy, I know we don't live in a theocracy, I know all that, but I think we can't ignore the fact that God speaks to a society and, and that the, the spiritual and the, um, and the societal are integrally linked in the Old Testament, okay? So, and, yeah, there's a whole lot of hermeneutics there. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying we come straight from the Old Testament, but we do see God speaking to a whole society. We see God condemning the, um, the injustices of the... Um, the Edomites, the Edomites, we see him. He says, you cut down my people at, this, at, the, uh, at the crossroads. We see him condemning the Ninevites. We see him condemning all these people. And yes, because they haven't believed God, but also because they've perpetrated injustice, we see him speaking to the Israelites the same. So we, we see that he does have a national picture involved. Okay, So I, I, I want to I say that, of course, we get to the New Testament. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll let Wade decide whether you can come back. Okay, um, I, I, I like spoken a lot, so I'm just going to... I'm gonna, when we come to the New Testament, I, I agree with you. It is, it is a struggle. And I've thought about this. And here's what I do see when I look at the New Testament. I see, uh, first of all, so we see the, I think we need to also recognize who the Christians were. They were tiny, powerless, very, uh, having no, very little influence on political and social uh, effects. I mean, they were tiny, they were persecuted. So let, let's recognize what's in their hand, okay? So they, and, and they didn't live in a democracy either, okay? So they weren't able to do that. But time and time again, we see them undermining the systems of injustice within their society. So the way Gentiles are treated, the way women are treated, are treated radically different in the church. We come to Philemon, and we're going to talk about that, is I have to actually think Philemon ends up undermining slavery. Because he says, go back, but he's no longer a slave, he's a brother. Now, when you have a brother... That changes it. So I, I agree with you. Paul doesn't automatically undermine it. Uh, it doesn't automatically condemn it. But I think he, the gospel, and I think church history bears this out, the gospel starts to undermine and change those structures as the gospel is lived out amongst the people of God. Um, that's a quick answer because I'm going to talk about And I can, Dave, Dave's dying. You need to tell him. Uh, no, I have nothing else to say. No, can he come back to you? He wants to yeah, come back. Okay. You're okay. <laughs> and a follow-up question. So, um, and, 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 and I, I want to admit that I think this is, this is, a, is a complex subject. So, I, I like, my words are not going to magically give you the, the, the magic bullet. I, I think, obviously, the Bible is speaking to the church. And, and I think that does say something to us. And I think that says, and, and in one sense, I always say to people, okay, let's just speak to the church. We've got so much mess to clean up. And the problem is our mess has affected society. So, we need to clean our house. But... I, I want to say this, and I want to say this very carefully. I think, whilst I think the Bible contains all we need to know about life and godliness, I think it also, we see the injunctions, the ethical, the social injunctions, act as a paradigm for, it gives us examples and paradigms for what we do going, out, going further. So that's why I said they were a small, powerless group, right? That they weren't going to influence uh, the, the state policy of the Roman Empire. But that doesn't mean that it was in, where, in societies where Christians do have power, 
that they can't seek to do that. I don't think it's, and and that's what I want to say, I don't think, and I think one of the primary ways we do that is by being the church. And we live in such a distinctive way, in such a countercultural way, that people are, that the authorities are going, we're trying to do this reconciliation thing, we're trying to do this justice thing, but who are you people? How are you getting this right? These people who should never be together are together, not in a, you know, Simonier, Rainbow Nation, we're all one kind of happy, happy, in a deep, meaningful way with the dividing walls of hostility about, how do you do that? Let me tell you about Jesus. Um, I, I, so I think that is our primary way, but I think we do speak to society because, do you know why? Because when we're talking about injustice, injustice are both affecting people within the church and because injustice is speaking, because we serve a God who is concerned about people without the church. And if there's a system of racism or oppression or discrimination or whatever that is, it, it is, is pushing down my brothers and sisters and other people, I need to speak out about it. I need to speak out about it because I think God is concerned about that. I think we look at the heart of God and we say, what would God have me do? I think God would say, do something about that. Um, and I, I think if we look at the Bible as a whole, we have a paradigm. I think we have a mandate for saying, when I see what God is doing, this is in continuity with that. Um, I don't know if that helps you. Um, thank you. <laughs> in a practical way, too, um, just to wrap things up, uh, that then, looking at what we do as local churches, what we do as Christians here in Vermont, um, really, I, I love this whole U-shape. I love the idea of speaking to the culture at large, because really, what are we asking people to do? We're asking people to repent mm. <laughs> of their sin. Yeah. Um, this is a not a means to an end, but mm. it is a way in which we get to share the gospel with mm. people, right? Yep. That's not really icing on the cake. I'll let you put all the icing on the cake tomorrow. No, yeah. Can I, can I say one thing? Yeah, Maybe I just, I just thought it's kind of... you you. I think one of the I think we need a bigger definition of sin, and we'll talk a lot about this. So I think we've individualized sin and we made it only personal. I think there's a corporate dimension of sin, and I think there are we create sin-ridden structures. I don't think we can have I don't think structures itself can be sinful, but I think they are built by sin. And so when we do that, our definition of sin becomes bigger. So our definition of repentance has to become a lot bigger. And so I think that starts to change things. Because then we say, oh, it's not just about me, uh, you know, not sleeping with my girlfriend or stop getting drunk on the weekends. It's about saying the way I I act economically and socially and politically, that's got to change. And by the way, that doesn't take us away from the gospel. That implicates me so much more. Because I'm going, man, it's not just this thing which maybe I can stop with willpower or go to Narcotics Anonymous and get cleaned up. No, I actually am that bad that everything I do is unjust and green and full of pride. I need Jesus. Only Who can rescue me from this body of sin? Only Jesus. And so I, I think actually when we look at justice, we look at the, the broadness of sin and repentance, it actually drives us more to Jesus. Thanks for listening. And remember that you were brought into the church by the saving work and person of Jesus. Also, that you are sent out to tell everyone about him. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Mountain View Scattered.